Hi, this is Pam Johnson resuming our discussion on renal and mesenteric CT angiography. And we were finishing up the mesenteric section, moving on to additional types of pathology. And I think I'll start here with mesenteric artery dissection. Dissections can occur in the celiac and the superior mesenteric artery, isolated dissections. It may involve one or both arteries. Usually we just see one artery involved, but 10% of patients may have both arteries involved. And this is exclusive of an aortic dissection, so only the celiac or the SMA is involved. The patients may present acutely with abdominal pain. However, it's important to recognize that these dissections are often seen incidentally on CT in patients with no symptoms and they are chronic in nature having occurred at some time in the past. We see these not infrequently now because of the resolution of our scanners and the use of multiplanar reconstruction. So we identify these more frequently than we have in the past and it's important to know that in, a, in the acute setting in a patient with abdominal pain um, it may be a significant finding, but in a patient with no symptoms being imaged for other indications, it may just be something that um, is going to be stable over time and is not going to cause the patient any problems. There's a new cause for mesenteric artery dissection called segmental arterial mediolysis, which is a rare non-inflammatory vasculopathy, and it's important to note that it is non-inflammatory. Pathologically, the medial layer is disrupted, and the CT correlate is the presence of dissection, hemorrhage, and the patient may develop ischemia. The most common arteries involved are the visceral and mesenteric. These patients will present with abdominal pain and GI bleeding. The appearance on CT is similar to the appearance of other forms of vasculitis with either a string of beads, stenosis, aneurysm, dissection, or arterial thrombosis. So they're nonspecific findings. The differential diagnosis for this finding, as we know, include FMD, polyarteritis nodosum, and then other vasculitis such as ANCA-associated vasculitis, giant cell, Takayasu's, Bissett's, and then type 4 or vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. The distinction is made clinically and it's important because SAM is a non-inflammatory process and is not going to respond to the same type of treatment that inflammatory etiologies will. So um, the radiologist makes the CT findings and the vascular findings and then this has to be taken in conjunction with other clinical indicators. When is intervention indicated for mesenteric artery dissection? Well, if the patient presents acutely with malperfusion of the true lumen or the false lumen in the artery continues to expand and can ca and cause compromise of the flow or a patient who has who presents acutely and has persistent symptoms these patients may require stenting um, so the, there's a range of causes additional causes of mesenteric artery dissection atherosclerosis vasculitis connective tissue disorder, vascular Ehlers-Danlos, trauma or iatrogenic, FMD, cystic medial necrosis, and hypertension. For the asymptomatic incidental patient, as I discussed, that we see frequently, there's no treatment indicated. And we've actually looked at some of these over time in a study published by Franco Verdi in JCAT and found that the patients that were identified incidentally and didn't have any symptoms, there was no change on serial imaging in a retrospective review of a number of cases 
from here at Hopkins. Now, if the patient has progressive or new symptoms, they may, uh, it may warrant stenting. Stenting is usually most effective if performed in the first few weeks after the dissection occurs because at this time the septum is still mobile and can be moved aside from the true lumen by the radial forces of the stent. So it's really something that's done when these patients present acutely. For the symptomatic complicated patient, they will undergo stenting and then further imaging surveillance. If the stent fails or if the patient event develops end organ injury or aneurysmal degeneration despite the presence of the stent, then the patient may have to undergo surgical repair. And here's a few examples. Here's a nice example of a superior mesenteric artery dissection, a long dissection with some aneurysmal dilatation of the aorta beginning in the mid portion of the SMA. So these are not always at the origin. And another important reason to look at the entire artery using both axial and multiplanar views. Here's an example of a celiac dissection. These, this is the common appearance. You'll notice that the artery is aneurysmally dilated, and then when you look more closely, especially if you look with your sagittal NPR, you'll see a small intimal dissection flap, and this is the appearance of typical appearance of the ones that we identify incidentally. Here's a patient who had marfanoid connective tissue disorder, acute abdominal pain, superior mesenteric artery dissection, and underwent stent placement. And another patient um, who had underwent stenting of both the celiac and the superior mesenteric arteries for arterial dissection. Okay, moving on to vascular arterial occlusion and starting with superior mesenteric artery occlusion. This actually in the acute setting can result in acute intestinal ischemia and infarction. So this is something that we do not want to miss in the patient who presents to the emergency department or just presents acutely with abdominal pain if not, if not diagnosed, this has a high mortality. They may present with ambiguous symptomatology um, and not this classic appearance of abdominal pain and GI bleeding. The cause is slightly more commonly due to an embolic phenomenon than just isolated thrombosis of the superior mesenteric artery. And there have been studies evaluating these patients who had embolic occlusion versus thrombotic occlusion. The patients who had embolic occlusion, in one study, half of them had a cardiac thrombus. 40% had atrial fibrillation. So these are risk factors. The occlusion was more likely to be located distally in the superior mesenteric artery when the cause was embolism. And in almost 70% of these patients, synchronous emboli were visualized in other locations, like the spleen or the kidneys. So these are the findings that we look for to help us determine what the cause is. It's, it's important in that if the patient has a cardiac thrombus as the cause, we don't just want to treat the occlusion in the SMA. We also have to address the cause, the source of the thrombus. Patients may um, have an SMA occlusion due just to thrombotic occlusion. In this case, it usually results in a more extensive intestinal infarction over a longer segment of the bowel. So here is an example. This is the case that is really critical to remember because that's probably about, on these two axial images, that's probably about as far as your eye will look at the SMA when you're reviewing the axial sections. We scroll through, we glance at the origin of the celiac and the SMA, and this looks completely normal on these, on these axial images. And we've gotten past the origin of the artery. But several slices more inferiorly, we see that the artery is thrombosed. And when you look on the sagittal 
NPR, you can see a, a short segment occlusive thrombus of the superior mesenteric artery. This could potentially cause intestinal infarction, and it's not it's something that you do not want to miss. So. I tell the residents, look very carefully at the SMA, the length of the SMA on the sagittal NPR to be sure that we don't miss this very critical finding. Okay, let's talk for a minute about superior mesenteric artery syndrome. And what this is, is um, secondary obstruction of the duodenum due to the configuration of the SMA, where it is positioned very close to the abdominal aorta. This causes obstruction of the transverse portion of the duodenum when it courses between the SMA and the aorta. Um, it has a f several other names, including arteriomesenteric duodenal compression syndrome. And really, the key to this diagnosis is understanding that it's not just the vascular findings. You also need to see abnormal dilatation of the stomach and the duodenum in order to be able to make the diagnosis of superior mesenteric artery syndrome. Patients have to have a, a set of clinical manifestations that reflect this degree of obstruction in order for it to be characterized as the actual syndrome. Just the vascular findings are not enough to make the diagnosis. So let's talk about the vascular findings. The criteria are narrowing of the aortomesenteric angle, which is the angle between the SMA and the aorta. This is normally between 28 and 65 degrees. When it's narrowed to less than 22 degrees, it's highly suspicious for superior mesenteric artery syndrome. We also measure the distance of the SMA. Between the back wall of the SMA and the anterior wall of the aorta, it should be 10 to 34 millimeters. In superior mesenteric artery syndrome, it's often less than 8 millimeters. That's how we make the diagnosis. So again, less than 22 degrees, aortomesenteric angle and the aortomesenteric distance less than eight millimeters. Also, other additional findings are dilatation of the duodenum and the stomach because of the obstruction by the SMA and obstruction of the left renal vein. Now you may see, you may actually see just the renal vein obstructed. The, the duodenum may cross much lower where the angle has and the distance have increased and may not be involved. And this is still a significant finding. It's called the nutcracker syndrome where the left renal vein is narrowed and the, um, there is some degree of obstruction of the renal vein. These patients can actually have hematuria. It may be the cause of hematuria in some patients. So it's important to recognize when it's, when it's very hemodynamically significant, the gonadal vein will, will dilate on that side, and that's another secondary finding. So here's a nice example. In this case, we clearly see that the stomach and the duodenum are, are dilated, and we can identify the point of obstruction right where the duodenum crosses the aorta, um, between the aorta and the superior mesenteric artery. And here's another patient where we can see that the left renal vein here is being compressed as it courses under the, the superior mesenteric artery between the artery and the aorta. Okay, I think we'll now move on to talking about renal CT angiography and what are the indications and what are different types of pathology that we may see on CT. So some of the indications for imaging the renal arteries include evaluation of potential renal donors, suspected or known renal artery stenosis, or um, a patient who may have suspicion for a renal artery aneurysm. Now it's important to note that these findings, both renal artery stenosis and aneurysm, even um, other forms of renal pathology may be unsuspected. And it's important to look closely at the renal arteries because you may make the diagnosis 
especially when a renal artery aneurysm is small and can be followed to determine when the patient needs surgery or to determine whether the aneurysm remains stable over time. So starting with renal donors, um, we need to evaluate not just the vasculature in these patients, but also the morphology of the kidney, the, f the function of the kidney, the collecting system, and the arterial and venous structures. Over time, we keep tailoring our protocol to reduce the radiation exposure. These are often young patients. And at this time, we are only doing a limited arterial and venous acquisition um, without any delayed imaging. And we can confidently determine whether the kidney is functioning, whether there's any abnormal pathology within the kidney, and you can get a look at the collecting system without opacifying it to confirm the absence of obstruction or even um, an anatomic variant. So in terms of the vasculature, we look for the number of renal arteries. Patients often have accessory branches. It's important to identify an early arterial branching, which is defined as branching of the renal artery within two centimeters of the origin. Venous variants that we look for in these patients include circumaortic or retroaortic left renal vein. And because um, this may be unsuspected, patients may have fibromuscular dysplasia or renal artery stenosis, it's critical to do good 3D renderings and evaluate for, the, and for any presence of um, diameter reduction, presence of aneurysms or beating that might indicate fibromuscular dysplasia. So here's a patient with uh, some anatomic variants on, on the right. The, the image on the left shows a patient with uh, branching right at the origin of the renal, renal artery for the upper pole and then an accessory lower pole renal artery. And then the MIP rendering, which is the image um, on the right-hand side of the slide, shows a patient with three right renal arteries and two left renal arteries. So this, these are the kinds of anatomic variants that the surgeon needs to know about. Okay, with respect to renal artery stenosis, most of renal artery stenosis, most cases are secondary to atherosclerosis, particularly in older patients or diabetics, patients who have other atherosclerotic disease such as peripheral vascular disease, hypertension or coronary artery disease. Once identified, it's important to describe the location, and we know that the atherosclerotic lesions usually arise in the proximal two centimeters or the proximal third of the artery. We grade the stenosis and then attempt to characterize the plaque. Is it calcified plaque, non-calcified plaque? Calcification is common within the renal arteries and can actually make it difficult to determine the degree of diameter reduction, especially when there are large calcifications that are causing the stenosis. Identification of any secondary findings is key, such as diminished perfusion or the presence of infarcts or evidence of um, asymmetry in the size of the kidneys that's indicative of some long-standing uh, compromise to the vascular flow. So, for example, in this case, there's a high-grade renal artery stenosis at the origin of the right renal artery. You can see that there's some asymmetry in the size of the kidneys, with the right being smaller than the left, reflecting long-standing um, ischemia to the right kidney. One of the other common causes of renal artery stenosis is fibromuscular dysplasia, but this accounts for less than 10% of causes. It's more common in younger patients, particularly middle-aged women. It is associated with smoking as well as some hormonal influence. And in the patients that are symptomatic, it's commonly bilaterally as high as 71%. So important to look at the other kidney. I've seen cases where you'll see the beating 
string of beads on one side, and when you look carefully at the other kidney, you'll see a small aneurysm. So it may not be, um, the manifestations may not be symmetric, but there will be abnormality on, on the contralateral side. There are different forms of fibromuscular dysplasia, the most common being medial fibroplasia, which occurs in the mid to distal renal artery, but it can involve all layers of the wall of the renal artery. And the classic appearance is the string of beads where the beading is larger than the normal arterial diameter. Other manifestations include focal stenosis, smooth long segment stenosis, the presence of aneurysms. Patients can also present with dissection, particularly in the intimal and periarterial variants, or thrombosis, also in those two subcategories of FMD. And here's a nice example of a patient with the beading in the right renal artery, and as, as I mentioned, you can see that the caliber where the beading is is larger than the caliber of the normal artery. Renal artery aneurysms are associated with many different risk factors, hypertension, atherosclerosis, other syndromes, smoking, and then some genetic syndromes as well. These are usually incidental and often asymptomatic, although patients can present with pain and hematuria. So when you're evaluating the patient in the ER or, or just um, referred with hematuria and pain, remember it's not always a stone or um, an inf it can be an infarct, it could be a stone, it, it could be um, a renal artery aneurysm as well, and so it's important to look carefully at the arterial structures and not just the kidney. The most common location is the main renal artery bifurcation or the main stem artery. In about 20% of patients, these will be bilateral, so we need to look at the contralateral kidney. And about a third of the patients have ipsilateral renal artery stenosis, so carefully evaluate the entire length of the renal artery. And here's a patient with bilateral renal artery aneurysms as well as a splenic artery aneurysm. The complications include hypertension, rupture, renal artery thrombosis, distal embolization from the aneurysm causing renal infarction, or the development of an AV fistula. So when are these repaired? All aneurysms over two centimeters are repaired. Most aneurysms, one and a half to two centimeters will be repaired. And those that are greater than a centimeter in a patient with risk factors for enlargement or rupture may undergo repair. So these include the patients with hypertension, the patient with either ipsilateral or contralateral renal artery stenosis, and then women of childbearing age because there's an elevated risk of rupture in the setting of pregnancy. Um, and the risk of rupture correlates with both aneurysm size or the other risk factors, including the patient who, uh, under, who becomes pregnant. Surgical treatment, interestingly, will not only treat the aneurysm, but it results in a decrease in blood pressure in up to 60% of those who had preoperative hypertension. So it's similar to renal artery stenosis. When you treat renal artery stenosis, you, often, you can cure the hypertension and you can um, improve renal function. This is also the case with renal artery aneurysms. Both hypertension and renal function can be improved by treating the aneurysm. So um, the complications, as we mentioned, we want to avoid the complication of rupture. Some recommend repair in the setting of pain or complications such as dissection or embolization. Treatment has really moved towards endovascular repair, and we use CT to evaluate for vascular patency after the placement of a stent when, it's, when the aneurysm is ex excluded with a stent graft. So here's a case, and I, I like to quiz the residents, which side is the aneurysm on? 
50-50 odds. Well, this, this just shows you how difficult it is to make the diagnosis on axial images alone. Well, aneurysm is on the left side, but on an axial image, it looks just like another branch of the renal artery. And this is why your, um, your multiplanar reconstructions and 3D renderings are so critical. Um, I hope that you've taken from this talk the role of CT in making the diagnosis of mesenteric and renal pathology and that these lesions are often unsuspected, including both dissections as well as aneurysms. The presence of a mesenteric artery dissection, these are not uncommon. We see these frequently with our high-quality imaging, and it may not necessarily be symptomatic. They're often stable when identified incidentally. It's the patient who presents with pain, acute symptoms, and particularly those with vascular compromise when a mesenteric dissection is a significant finding. But the identification of, of any of these findings requires high-quality imaging, including from the very beginning with the selection of narrow detector sections, with thin section overlapping reconstruction, with really well timed bolus administration of IV contrast, which is becoming more critical as the scanners are faster, with high levels of contrast enhancement, and with evaluation of the data set beyond the axial plane. You have to use your multiplanar reconstructions and 3D renderings to make these diagnoses. So thank you very much for your attention and have a great day.